Welcome, everyone, to episode 93 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and today's episode is more of the same. I've got a pretty crazy serial killer story and some encounters with a Wendigo. Also, keep an eye out this weekend for the next Patreon-exclusive bonus episode. All bonus episodes are available from the $5 tier and up, so make sure to check those out. But for now, let's get into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Jerry Brudos was an American serial killer and necrophile who murdered at least four women in Oregon between 1968 and 1969. His killings are primarily known for centering around his fetish for women's shoes. Jerry Brudos was born in Webster, South Dakota. As the younger of two sons, his mother had wanted a girl and was very displeased that she had another son instead, and constantly subjected him to emotional and physical abuse as a result. As a child, Brudos and his family moved into different homes in the Pacific Northwest before settling in Salem, Oregon. Brudos harbored a fetish for women's shoes from the age of five, after playing with stiletto-heeled shoes at a local junkyard. He reportedly attempted to steal the shoes of his first grade teacher. He also had a fetish for women's underwear and claimed that he would steal underwear from female neighbors as a child. He spent his teen years in and out of psychotherapy and psychiatric hospitals. In his teenage years, Brutos began to stalk local women, knocking them down or choking them unconscious and fleeing with their shoes. At the age of 17, he abducted and beat a young woman, threatening to stab her if she did not follow his sexual demands. Shortly after being arrested, he was taken to the psychiatric ward of Oregon State Hospital for nine months. There, it was found Brutos' sexual fantasies revolved around his hatred toward his mother and women in general. He underwent a psychiatric evaluation and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Despite being institutionalized, Brudos graduated from high school with his class in 1957. Shortly after graduation, he became an electronics technician. In 1961, Brudos married a 17-year-old girl 
with whom he fathered two children and settled in a Salem suburb. He asked his new bride to do housework naked, except for a pair of high heels, while he took pictures. It was at about this time that he began complaining of migraine headaches and blackouts, reliving his symptoms with night prowling raids to steal shoes and lace undergarments. Brutus would undergo a period of transvestitism where he used the female persona as a form of escape mechanism. He kept the shoes, underwear, and for a time, the bodies of his victims in a garage that he would not allow his wife to enter without first announcing her arrival on an intercom that he had set up. Between 1968 and 1969, Brutus bludgeoned and strangled four young women and attempted to attack two others. Linda Slauson, 19, a door-to-door encyclopedia saleswoman, who knocked on Brutus's door on January 26, 1968. Brutus lured her to the basement while his wife and children were in the house, knocked her out with a wooden plank, and strangled her. He dressed her in different female underwear and shoes that he had stolen, arranged her body in provocative poses, and used a hacksaw to cut off her left foot, which he kept in a freezer and used to model his collection of high heel shoes. He disposed of her body in the Willamette River. Jan Susan Whitney, 23, a motorist whose car broke down on Interstate 5 between Salem and Albany on November 26, 1968. Brutus offered to drive her to his home with the excuse of letting her call a tow truck there. While still in the car, He strangled her with a leather strap and raped her. He kept the body hanging from the pulley in his garage for several days, during which he dressed, photographed, and had sex with it. This time, Brutus cut off one of her breasts and made a resin mold of it that he used as a paperweight. Afterward, he tied the body to a piece of railroad iron and threw it in the Willamette along with Slauson's foot which had rotted. Karen Sprinker was 18, and she was abducted at gunpoint from a parking lot outside of a department store on March 27, 1969. Brutus was dressed in women's clothes during this attack. He took her to his garage, made her try on his collection of underwear, and pose while he photographed her, raped her, and strangled her by hanging her by her neck from a pulley. Brutus then would have sex with the body on several occasions, and he cut off her breasts to make plastic molds. Afterward, he tied the body to a six-cylinder car engine with nylon cord and threw it in the river. On April 21, 1969, he attempted to abduct Sharon Wood, who was 24, from the basement floor of a parking garage at gunpoint. And then on April 22nd, he attempted to abduct 15-year-old Gloria Jean Smith. Linda Saley, she was 22, she was abducted from a shopping mall parking lot on April 23, 1969. Brutus brought her to his garage where he raped and strangled her. He then played with her corpse. He decided not to cut off her breasts because they were, quote, too pink, 
and instead applied an electric current to the body in an attempt to make it jump, which failed. Afterward, he tied the body to a car transmission with a nylon cord and threw it in the river. Brutus would dress up in high heels and masturbate after committing each murder. In May 1969, a fisherman found the bodies of Saley and Sprinker in the Long Tom River. The police asked students at a nearby university campus about suspicious men, and one led them to Brutus, who had phoned her several times to ask her for a date. Brutus gave police a false address, which increased their suspicions. At his garage, the police found copper wire that was determined to have been cut with the same tool that cut the cords used to tie the bodies. Brutus was arrested, and he made a full confession. On June 28, 1969, Brutus pled guilty to three first-degree murders, Sprinker, Whitney, and Saley, and he was sentenced to three consecutive terms of life imprisonment in Oregon State Penitentiary. Though he confessed to Slauson's murder, Brutus was neither tried nor convicted for it because he did not make and keep photographs of the body, unlike in the other cases, but only of her foot. Whitney's body was found a month after Brutus's conviction, about a mile downstream from where he had said that he'd thrown it. While incarcerated, Brutus had piles of women's shoes catalogs in his cell. He wrote to major companies requesting them and claimed that they were his substitute for pornography. He lodged countless appeals, including one in which he alleged that a photograph taken of him with one of his victim's corpses could not prove his guilt because it was not the body of a person he was convicted of killing. In 1995, the parole board told Brutus that he would never be released. Psych Psychiatrist Michael H. Stone identifies Brutus as having a psychopathic personality, noting his callousness and lack of remorse for his crimes. Marion County Detective Jim Byrnes recalled a conversation with Brutus in which he asked him, Do you feel some remorse, Jerry? Do you feel sorry for your victims, for the girls who died? Brutus then picked a half piece of paper up off of the table, wadded it up into a ball, and threw it on the floor, whereupon he replied, I care about those girls as much as I care about that piece of paper right there. Brutus died in prison on March 28, 2006 from liver cancer. At the time of his death, he was the longest incarcerated inmate in the Oregon Department of Corrections. He spent a total of 37 years from 1969 to 2006. This isn't something that I say often, but I can honestly say that I'm glad that he died in prison. Thankfully, he wasn't able to kill that many girls before he was caught, but it's a shame that any of them were. But our next story comes from YourGhostStories.com, and it's called The Wendigo. There is no easy way 
to tell the tale of facing a Wendigo. I won't give my name away, so my name will be Alex, due to the severity of this story. Before you read on, know one detrimental detail. This story is 100% true without over-exaggeration. So please, without further wait, let's begin my horrifying yet eye-opening experience. On September 13th, 2016, I was driving up the Bighorn Mountains above Buffalo, Wyoming. Just like every trip, I packed accordingly. Two bottles of water, six Nutrigrain bars, and my loaded handgun. I drove up four to five times per week, never worrying on ghost stories or monsters. As far as I knew, these mountains were harmless besides predators seldomly seen and weather interference. But something in me changed on September 13th. Instead of going to my usual neck of the woods, I went to a remote campsite known as Hedinger, 15 miles up from town. It's a beautiful place where if you cross a fence, you can climb to a peak and oversee for days. As I was looking over the majestic snow-covered landscape, I saw a tall, slender figure marching through the blanket of powder. Normally, I would drop it as a hunter on the move, but Hedinger was far from any known hunting locations. To this day, I wish I would have packed up and left. I wish I didn't peek through my binoculars, but sometimes securing curiosity is the only safe option. I'll never let myself forget the moment that I peered through the cold glass over the winter plateau. As I focused my lenses and the figure came to clarity, I dropped behind the rocks. It was looking back at me, as if it could see me. That would be impossible for a human. I was a thousand feet away or more, hidden by a rock and within the tree line. I peeked back up, using only the top of my head to look again. It was just standing there, sniffing the air and looking at me. My heart sank and I couldn't move. I was frozen with fear. About 200 feet behind me was a small rock cave, big enough to squeeze into and deep enough to hide in the dark. I slowly made my way, inching backwards. I took one last look and noticed that it was sprinting towards me. I moved as fast as possible to the hole and I tucked in. The moment that I made it, the creature was standing feet from where I was. Its skin was damp in appearance and gray. It also had long hands and fingers to match that turned to dagger-like nails. I cut my mouth to hide my breathing, which became a challenge due to the cold. But as I moved my hand, a rock tumbled. I looked down at the rock just to look back up and see its cold eyes peering through the hole. It was almost as if it couldn't see me, but it knew something was there. I stood as still as a statue. It reached in, almost grasping my pack. After five minutes of forever, it gave up and took back to sniffing. I waited there in shock, and a daunting weight of fright casting over me every moment in passing. It quickly got dark as night fell and it finally wandered off. I waited until I felt assured to poke my head out. 
I took a long look around and I saw nothing, not even a footprint. I took time in watching my steps to stay quiet and I made my way back down to my car. I used my key to unlock it rather than using the button lock. I got in and I sank down and I took a last look around. I finally found the courage to crank my car and I began to drive down the trail to the main highway. As I was just about turned around, I saw it. It stood as tall as the trees and stared at me. I hit the gas and I fishtailed but I made it. As I reached the main road, it was in pursuit and it was keeping up. After a few miles, I looked back and it was gone. To this day, I haven't been back, not even to that region of the mountains. Looking it up, I found several myths about the creature and its origins. I believe you should too. It's quite unique. Stay safe and know that the world is far more vast than we know. Our next story is called, Something Mimicked My Mother in the Woods. After browsing this website and reading dozens of stories, I finally decided to post one of my own. I've actually had several paranormal encounters over the years, but this one has always struck me as particularly bizarre and frightening. This incident occurred sometime in the fall of 2006. I grew up in a rural part of Ohio. My house had fairly dense woods located directly behind it. As a child, I had a passion for exploring. I especially loved exploring those woods. It was my favorite place to be. Prior to the incident, I had wandered through those woods many times, always with my mother's permission. There was one tree in particular that I frequently enjoyed to climb usually about to the halfway mark, so I could perch myself on one of the heavier branches and just relax as I listened to the peaceful sounds of nature. Climbing that tree for the very first time was quite an accomplishment. From that position, I could partially see the back of my house. On that day, after a fair amount of exploring, I carefully scaled my favorite tree. I seated myself on a sturdy branch and I took in the view. Naturally, being late in October, the sun inevitably began to set within a few minutes. I always felt a little saddened to see the darkness approaching. The woods were like my own little sanctuary. I could entertain myself out there for hours. When darkness began to fall, however, my mother would stand at the edge of the woods and call my name until I obediently returned home so not to be stranded out there after dark. After watching the sunset until I could no longer see it, I began my descent down the tree. I was nearly at the bottom when I heard my mother's familiar voice calling my name. I thought nothing of it at first, as this routine had occurred plenty of times before. Then I realized something strange as my feet touched the ground. My mother's voice was coming from behind me, deeper in the woods, 
rather than towards the entrance where she always stood when she called me home. My mom had never entered those woods before, at least not with me. I was eager to find her and show her all of my favorite spots before it grew too dark. And that's when I realized that something was off. How could she have gone into the woods ahead of me? Certainly, I could have missed her, but as I said, she's never entered these woods. She continued calling my name, but there was something strange about it. She sounded absolutely frantic, almost angry. Fearing that I was in trouble for reasons currently unknown, I froze in place. As her voice drew closer, I squinted my eyes to see if I could locate her and determine exactly how angry or upset she appeared to be. However, I didn't see anyone or anything unusual. Suddenly, I heard her voice calling my name from the direction of my house, sounding much calmer. Seconds later, from somewhere within the woods yet again, it wasn't an echo. I wasn't imagining things. I was literally hearing her beckoning me from the edge of our backyard, as well as ahead of me. My legs suddenly turned to jelly. I couldn't, couldn't quite comprehend what was going on. Come here right now, the voice that I originally believed to be her screamed from just ahead. I realized that whoever or whatever was mimicking my mother was drawing closer. I didn't question which voice was actually my mother's as there was something about the way it sounded that unnerved me. Terrified of what I would see if I stood there much longer, I turned around and I ran towards the exit of the woods as quickly as my legs could possibly carry me. It was amazing that I didn't trip over anything in my haste. Even though my house wasn't very far away from where I had been standing, those woods had never seemed larger to me than they did in that moment. From behind me, my mother's voice continued to call my name, now sounding desperate. Panic set in as my actual mother finally came into view, waiting patiently as she usually did until I returned home. In my frightened state, I absolutely refused to look back. As soon as I was out of the woods and in the backyard next to my mother, the other voice was suddenly gone. Rather than fading away, it seemed to stop the very moment that I stepped foot into my backyard. I must have looked as frightened as I felt because my mother asked me what was wrong. Slowly but surely, my panic subsided. I didn't say anything until we were safely inside the house with our doors locked. I asked my mother if she had entered the woods. Appearing confused by the question, she told me that of course she hadn't. With that confirmation, I hesitantly asked her if she had heard anyone else calling my name and yelling. The answer to that question was also no. Although I was still very much shaken up, I managed to explain everything that happened as clearly and rationally as possible. My mother was surprisingly nonchalant about the whole situation, explaining that I must have imagined it, that I was spending too much time out there by myself. The incident in those woods have stayed with me to this day. I can still hear that voice as clear as a bell. 
whoever or whatever it was calling my name sounded exactly like my mother, but I know it wasn't her. Not only was she waiting for me outside, but the voice also sounded strange in a way that I still can't fully explain. I didn't go back into the woods until I was 17 years old, and even then, I never hung out for very long. I've carefully gone over every possible explanation, but none of them seem entirely plausible. It certainly wasn't my mother playing a prank. There was no way that she could have pulled it off. Not to mention the fact that she's never been one to play pranks. I also highly doubt that it was anyone else, because as I stated before, we lived in a rural area. The closest neighbor was at least a mile away, and I wasn't personally acquainted with any of them. How could they have known my name and where to find me? We've since moved out of that house, but my mother and I occasionally discuss the incident. She still claims that she never heard or saw anything unusual out there. I know it probably shouldn't, but what happened in those woods continues to bother me. I spent many hours out there prior to that day, and never had anything out of the ordinary occur. The best explanation I have at this point is a doppelganger or possibly a demon or wendigo, but I am unsure. If anyone has a possible explanation as to what might have happened, I would love to hear it. Our final story is another possible Wendigo encounter, and it's called Three Visits to Canyon di Celli. The first time I went to Canyon di Celli, I went to three or four overlooks on the north rim. Each and every time I stepped out of my vehicle, I had overwhelming feelings of despair and death. It made me feel horrible and didn't know why I was feeling that way. I drove over to the south rim and I had feelings of safety and relief at the overlooks. That night, I pitched my tent in the campground with my dog, Pillar. I was sitting at the picnic tables by lantern, writing in my journal, when Pillar tugged on her leash, which was wrapped around my wrist, and pulled me towards the car. I called her back and I petted her to calm her down. She sat beside me again as I journaled. All of a sudden, she took off and tugged me towards the car again. I told her, yes, I feel the same way. We are sleeping in the car tonight. I swore never to return there because of how it made me feel. About four years later, I was going on a bird watching slash camping trip with a couple of other ladies to southeast Arizona, then on to Teos, New Mexico. One of them wanted to go to Canyon de Chelly, and I immediately said no. I then thought about facing that fear and offered that we hire a guide to climb into the canyon, camp in the canyon, then climb out the next day. So that is what we did. Our guide and I were sitting by the fire in the canyon when I asked what the history of the canyon was. He said that the north rim is called Canyon del Muerto and the south rim is Canyon de Celli. I had never realized 
these were two different canyons. He said that Kit Carson and his men massacred the Navajo living in the canyon to the north, and some of those escaped into the canyon to the south. I said, oh, this makes sense. So what is the deal with the campground? And he said that that is where Kit Carson's men were buried. Once we climbed out of the canyon, we stayed at the campground, and once again, I could not sleep in my tent. I slept in the car. This story continues, but it gets a lot longer with weirder things happening. I am a seasoned solo tent camper, hiker, paddler, backpacker. If I don't feel right about staying someplace, I don't. But it has only happened three or four times. The next year or so, I was on a reservation at a powwow in Oklahoma. My boyfriend and I camped on the reservation. The second night there, while lying in the tent, a native man came to me. He was holding my right hand and pulling me to him while telling me to come with him. I told him I was there with Rob and I wouldn't go. He kept pulling me and telling me to come with him, and I kept pulling away saying no. I could not get my hand away until I jerked my arm really hard and then wrapped it around Rob and the native man disappeared. I told Rob what happened in the morning. He freaked out and he said the same thing happened to him the first night that we were there but he didn't want to tell me because it scared him so much. So there was this native woman trying to seduce him with kisses and lure him away from me. Then at one point she looked up at Rob and she was now a man. A year or two later, I traveled solo to Chaco Canyon, then over to Navajo Nation Fair in Window Rock. I was going to camp near Window Rock, but then thought that I really needed to get over my reluctance to camp at Canyon de Chelly Campground. I needed to face my fears and just do it. So I drove up there, arriving just before dusk. I walked the campground, which I never do and ran across a lady that was camping solo on her first camping trip ever. I thought how ridiculous it was that I, a seasoned solo traveler, could not sleep in my tent, and this lady could. I pitched my tent after dark, journaled for a while, and then I went to sleep. During the night, I awoke to the same experience Rob had in Oklahoma. I said out loud, Oh, please, you can't do better than that. I know what will happen next, referring to the native man trying to seduce me with kisses and telling me to go with him. As soon as I said this, he disappeared. I went back to sleep, only to wake up sometime in the night to go to the restroom. I never need the restroom in the middle of the night. I put on a dim headlamp and I headed for the bathroom. I did not turn on the light because I did not want to wake up the other campers in the area. As soon as I started to pee, the bathroom door opened and slammed shut. Then immediately, the stall on the other side of me slammed shut. I was thinking that there was no way a person could get from the front door to the stalls that fast, and that they could not even see the stalls because there was very little light with my dim headlamp. Then immediately, there was an unearthly gush of water into either stall beside me. I've heard many women urinate, and it does not sound like this. All of this happened very quickly. 
I was still urinating the whole time, even as I bent over and looked under each stall for feet, but there wasn't any. When I finished up, I walked over to the sink to wash my hands, and then I walked to my tent saying, well, you got me there, that was better. No one ever exited the bathroom, and the light never came on. I did not have a problem sleeping in my tent after this. I can't explain why, but I've been in a heavy kick of uh, reading stories about Wendigos and watching movies about Wendigos recently. It's just something that has piqued my interest. Have any of you had any encounters that you think might have been a Wendigo? I would love to hear about it and possibly share it in a future episode. But that is going to do it for today. I do hope that everyone enjoyed the stories as much as I did. If you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others find us. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. Thank you in advance for subscribing on YouTube and helping me to eventually reach my goal of 500 subscribers and to eventually get the 500 subscriber YouTube exclusive bonus episode. If you do enjoy the show, please consider helping to support us by joining on Patreon. Remember, the next monthly bonus episode comes out this weekend, and there's monthly bonus episodes all being available from the $5 tier. Once again, thank you everyone for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. Unsolved.